This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind Blue Doors, a podcast where women and allies have the right to speak their truth and share their stories. So welcome today, everyone. Uh, Today we have with us Jane. She works in a Canadian policing organization, and she has requested to remain anonymous because she has fears and concerns that she will face extreme reprisal and retaliation should her identity be made public. So welcome, Jane. Thank you for being here. We're so excited to have you share your story and be an inspiration for other women. I'm uh, excited to be here. And I think what you're doing is incredibly important. Okay. My story is quite long. It actually starts at the beginning of my career. Um, I was a hesitant police officer. I was convinced uh, to become a police officer by an inspector in another service. And he said that I had the type of personality and the ability to see ambiguity. And I was the kind of person that should be a police officer. And my concerns, I remember at the time, were I'm a small woman. And these were my father's concerns as well, uh, because it is a dangerous job. So I thought about it for about a year. And then I decided, okay, I, I'm going to do this because I can. I started running. I started working out. I failed the police testing over and over and over. I had sessions weekly to ensure that I would pass these tests. Um, And I became the fittest that I had ever been in my life because I had never been fit before. And then I had to teach myself math. Okay, so I I was essentially this hesitant police officer and I finally passed the testing. uh, And I was extremely excited. In fact, when I applied to my service, I was told that I was the second most competitive in my class because of my education and because I was female because I guess recruiting is sort of catered to that. So four days before I was to start with like this pre-program before you start policing school, I injured myself and I wasn't able to run at full capacity. I ended up going through physiotherapy, but because of that, I was modified and I couldn't do all of the use of force because I was injured. Um, So I didn't have any experiences initially. It all was fairly normal. And then I went obviously to the training academy. Uh, And then when I got back, my foot was sort of healed. And there was the head of recruitment for use of force. And he was, he had a reputation for being fairly problematic, on top of which he had a reputation for abusing physically and mentally, in particular, small female officers. And he made me his victim. I remember the first time that I dealt with him, he had us running back and forth uh, with our full use of force belts, with our baton all jammed together and there was batons flying everywhere. And because I wasn't as fit as I normally would have been, he would scream, you're always last. And then my last name. Um, and this was in front of all of my supervisors. And then he would humiliate those who were on the bottom rung, which was always females, um, about who did, who performed the, the least, I suppose. And he would force those three on the bottom to do extra exercises or like planks for five minutes uh, in front of the entire class. Sorry. So this was only women that he would single out? Yes. It was only okay. women. And and when you say your training academy, is this at the specific service you were at or provincial at the provincial level? This academy? was at the provincial level. So all police. And I didn't have any issues there. I passed everything uh, with flying colors. In fact, anyway, I, I never failed anything within use of force, which is also important to note. On another occasion, again, related to running, um, he had us running around the building and we were chasing after one of our classmates and I was last. All of the training staff sergeants and inspectors and my future bosses uh, were lined along the hallway that we were running. And he again screamed, you're always last, your last name, you're always last. And he had done this a number of times and I was just slowly becoming defeated, but I didn't want to say anything because your their mentality was to beat you down and build you back up, which is fairly old school. And I remember that day uh, because I was still injured and I just screamed back at him, I'm trying. And then he lectured the entire class about what I said and said, trying isn't good enough. You're weak. You're weak. And then I remember getting into the change room and breaking down. And then 
one of the female um, members of Use of Force had come in and said, he wants to talk to you. Uh, that was the head of the trainer. And I thought that he was maybe going to say, you know, like, maybe I pushed you a little bit too far, but that is not at all what happened. He told me, I, I went out after I collected myself because I didn't want him to see me cry. And he told me that I was weak. He couldn't give me a reason. And he said that I don't have what it takes. Um, and I, I asked him to clarify. I said, is this because my cardio isn't great? Because I cannot find anything else that I'm doing wrong uh, to make you not like me. And you're always singling me out. You're always making me do extra exercises. And then we had use of force again later in the day. And again, he was on me, on me, on me. And then at break, I just wanted a break. Um, so I was going to the water area and he proceeded to grab me and put his arms around my neck uh, and then put me in a chokehold and pull me to the ground. Uh, and whenever we tapped out, they're supposed to stop. And I was tapping out and he wouldn't, he wasn't stopping. And I started coughing and nobody said anything. Also bear in mind, I was being ostracized by my classmates at this point because, well, they don't want to be associated to me because why would they want this to happen to them? And this was actually brought up to me years later by some classmates saying, I will never forget the day that you got choked out in front of the entire class just for going to the water area. And we couldn't do anything. So we just didn't say anything and we just let it happen. And then we had nine, a nine day stretch that I'll never forget where we had use of force every single day for nine days. And my particular service um, ran these scenarios that were quite crazy. Like they had heavy metal music in the background. Every single scenario you went on, you were fighting. And they would attack you. They'd be wearing like these fist suits. Anyway, the first day we had these outside scenarios and he gave the class this speech before we started. And it was, if I'm putting you by yourself for a scenario, that means I think you're weak. If I'm putting you in a group, it's because I think that you're so strong that you need to learn how to be a better team player. And then calls my last name. You're up. So the first scenario, I was ambushed by like, I think they're like paint guns, like the simulation rounds. So I was ambushed in this scenario. And because I'm already like crushed, my confidence was completely crushed. My stance was all off. Anyway, um, he made fun of me after that scenario. And then he said my last name again. You're up. Uh, this time, again, ambushed like behind a car, I think. And again, he makes fun of me. And then finally, a group goes together. So I guess these are the strong ones. And I just, I felt so humiliated. I went to the bathroom. And one of the trainers, who was female and also happened to be his girlfriend, um, came into the bathroom and I said, I'm being singled out. This isn't right. And she said, oh, no, you're not being singled out. I said, yes, I'm being singled out. I can hardly breathe. I remember crying so hard that I could hardly breathe. And I said, I can't go back out there. And then he came in. And he said, oh, well, you need to go back out. And like, I have a scenario like for you. Um, and everybody else went in groups. Everybody. I was the only one that went by myself. So I finally, okay, I worked so hard for this job. I need to go out and do this. So um, he put me in another scenario by myself and again, made fun of me, but I collected myself. And then he forced me to go again with just the females in a scenario. And this scenario was us behind a vehicle. And then this truck going around the vehicle filled with the entire use of force team, just like wailing us with these sim rounds. Um, I remember my head was bleeding. I still have scars on my hands from it. And then I just cried the whole way home. The next day, I was pulled into the sergeant's office and told that I needed this extra training because I'm incompetent um, and that all these concerns have arisen about me, like in particular me. And I said, what are the concerns? And I said, I tried to tell him what was going on. And he ignored me because I thought that maybe I was being pulled in because I had like a breakdown the day before and they were going to like check on me. No, he was just echoing and saying, you know, like you're this victim and you have this victim mentality and you're always making excuses. So you're going to go for remedial training. So I had to go every weekend and I passed every single little scenario because he was never there on the weekends. And I even was told by other members of the use of force team, we're not really sure why you're here. 
um, because you've never failed anything. You don't have weapon confusion. And nobody could articulate to me why. And I, I remember I even got 100% on one of our written tests and I was the only one in my class. And then I get, I, I would say a couple of days after that, because we we're kind of in class, um, I got pulled into the office. And by the way, I found out later that these are all drinking buddies. So the says, we're holding you behind. So you're not going to graduate with your class. Um, so you're going to do like extra training that we've formulated specifically for you, along with another officer that actually did like perhaps have some issues because there was some weapon confusion. But regardless, this is my story, not hers. So every day for two weeks, we sat in the hallway for hours wearing our recruit badges. Uh, we had to join in-service use of force almost every day and in our uniforms. Uh, they made us go to some random course that I would have taken on the job anyway. So there was no training that I was doing that was special or specific to me. Uh, it just seemed like a humiliation tactic more than anything. And so because I was held back, everybody in my division thought that I was incompetent. And that I was this huge problem. And they were already making fun of me because obviously everybody talks. And I remember one day another trainer had come up to me and hugged me in the bathroom and just been like, oh, you just need to stop making those excuses. But I could tell that she sort of felt sorry for me. So the day of the graduation ceremony, they let me get my badge with everybody. But then afterward, and it was like just fake for me where I'm just trying to breathe, trying to breathe, trying to breathe. Uh, just to get through this marching. My parents were there. My parents actually never found out that I didn't graduate along with my class because I was so embarrassed. So I never told them. I never told my in-laws. The only people that knew were my class, everybody at work, my husband. Yeah. So I remember like being at the ceremony and my future superintendent was friends with my in-laws. And he's like, oh, like, when are you starting? And it was right in front of my in-laws. And I'm just trying to be like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, I need to get out of here. And then I had to ha hand my badge back to one of the people in training. So I had this two weeks where I was just humiliated in the hallways. And then I got to my division and obviously nobody wants to like talk to me because I am this incompetent liability according to them. But I eventually was able to prove myself. And like, I, I know because people were constantly talking behind my back. Um, and after a few fights in uh, realizing that I'm not incompetent and I'm actually fairly bright. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that I was ever, I ever fit in. I always sort of felt outcasted. Uh, but the only reason any of that happened to me is because I'm a small female. So that was how my career began, uh, which is, was, it was traumatizing and I was terrified always. So I sort of changed myself to fit in with the boys club. And when I heard people say things that were racist or behave in a racist manner or in a misogynistic manner, I just laughed it off because that's what you do. Because when you're a police officer and a female, you can only fit into three categories. There is no other categories for you. You are the mattress, so you're the slut. Or you're the incompetent, me. Or you're the little sister. So basically, once this narrative sort of had worn off, I think I sort of went between the incompetent um, and the little sister depending on where I was working, but I always felt talked about. I remember like even being like bullied by other female police officers. So they're like, I, I really never felt any sort of unity. So, you know, fast forward to more recently when specifically when George Floyd, um, I think I had an aha moment where I said, you know, and <sighs> there are systemic issues in our society. There are. I've seen them. I've experienced them. I've experienced misogyny forever, like in every aspect of my life. And I've seen so many dangerous things firsthand. So my thoughts have always been, um, it's society that needs fixing, not the institutions, because that's not a personhood. You can't fix a corporation. Institutions are reflections of society. So I never in a million years thought that someone could be offended by anyone uttering a life matters, which I understand why some people in my organization felt threatened by the original organization of Black Lives Matter because they were standing on, you know, um, station counters screaming at us. They got us removed from the gay pride parades. So I understand 
but to me, like the theory, Black Lives Matter, well, yeah, they do matter. Um, and it's about racism. So unfortunately, I think because of the original organization and how that was perceived, somehow Black Lives Matter was met with Blue Lives Matter. So then we had this conflict where police officers were taking Black Lives Matter as an attack and were responding to Blue Lives Matter. And I just, I didn't understand this. So I tried to, and I I actually did post about like waiting on other officers to like stand up and maybe I didn't do it in the way that they wanted me to. But my message was just don't be a racist. You have to see ambiguity. You can acknowledge that racism exists in society and in institutions while also backing the blue. That was, that was my point. And then at one point, because (laughs) that might reveal my identity uh, because I I went fairly fairly far. So you just, on some sort of a platform, you did post it. And then one day someone commented that I should be shot in the head. And that particular video went very viral all around the service. And then everybody was watching my content and thought that I was mentally unwell and that I was mentally unwell and I don't back the blue. I was ghosted by one of my best friends. I actually used to call her my work wife. I was just totally ghosted by her. I had another friend that said, you need to stop this. You need to stop this. And I said, I don't understand. Stop, you know, being anti-racist. Is that what you want me to stop? Like, and then I got called by my staff sergeant at home and he said, um, you need to take it all down. And I said, whoa, whoa, like, just so you know, like people are going to notice because it's gone very viral. This is my purposes. This was my whole intent was to promote anti-racism and do it from a policing perspective. Like, is there someone in the service that I can talk to, to maybe guide my messaging? And he said, oh, wait. I'll call like the upper echelon. I'll call management and see what they said. He calls me back and says, nope, got to take it all down. So I took it all down, which was quite devastating. And I remember being really upset that day um, just because I didn't like, are you saying like, what is wrong with being anti-racist? Shouldn't we all be anti-racist? I don't understand. And now I have this voice where I'm talking to people who are anti-police and we're seeing ambiguity together And we're working with each other to try and fix things and acknowledge each other. Because in order to fix anything, you need to acknowledge the other side. And that was my whole purpose. And then getting into work the next day, I get a call from the association that I'm about to be served. So the superintendent and my boss came in and they served me essentially a cease and desist saying that I was no longer allowed to speak in uniform Um, post anything on social media about their service. So this, and I clarified as well, I said, does this include like my pregnancy announcement? Because my daughter is wearing my hat in like a power wheels police car saying backup is on the way. And they said, read that again. Yeah. So I had to take down my pregnancy announcement. And then they told me that I was being internally investigated uh, for breach of directive. And I said, um, can you explain to me what I've done wrong? And they said, uh, we don't, we agree with your messaging, but we don't agree with the delivery. And I said, okay, well, how should I have delivered it? Because I'm just speaking as a person. I'm not speaking on behalf of my service. I'm speaking on behalf of me as a human who is seeing humanity And I was just trying to do my part. Like, I don't know how helpful it is to, you know, put out really heavily sanitized corporate messaging. I don't think that's helpful. And it makes us look like emotionless robots. And we're not. So because of that, I got a target on my back. And it was incredibly stressful knowing that I was being investigated. And it went on for months, months and months and months that I was being investigated. Um, And it was embarrassing. I still feel humiliated, like I've done something wrong. And then I ended up just getting to the point because of external factors where I just had enough. So I posted again and I said exactly what my service had done to me without mentioning them in my civilian clothes. And I mentioned that my service cared more about controlling me than someone threatening to shoot me in the head. And I even asked when I did my internal investigations interview, which basically sounded a lot like this podcast does, I was explaining everything. 
I asked why they didn't care that somebody threatened to shoot me in the head. And they said, oh, we'll get answers for you. Well, they didn't. And then it took someone seeing that and going into Intel and saying, are you telling me that one of our officers just got threatened and nobody gives a shit? And then I got a call from Intel that morning and they didn't know anything about anything. Anyway, so I ended up being uh, docked 16 hours as my punishment for breach of directive um, and was sent a letter from the staff sergeant of IA, Internal Investigations, uh, essentially saying that my videos were inappropriate uh, and doesn't align with the service's messaging. So that's interesting. I remember, and I think it's because of this, where I work, I often don't have backup and it's a very busy area. So I was about to get changed to leave the station. And um, for some reason, the door didn't lock correctly. So I was in my civilian clothes and somebody came in and started like taping the lobby, even though the station was closed. And so I'm, I can't leave. Um, So I called for backup and then the call taker put in the call that it was me calling and put my last name. Uh, So that was photographed and circulated all around the service that now I can't talk to people as well. And I got phone calls from my friends that are still my friends on the way home just saying, oh, could you have dealt with it differently? Well, no, not really. So now I'm concerned about backup. It's so problematic. Um, And through all of this, because of my previous social media posting, I was contacted by a fairly large news outlet and I wanted to do things right. So I went to the association. This is more recent. I went to the association and I said, you know, this could be an opportunity for us to switch the narrative. Why don't you use my platform and my voice and we can start having these discussions? Like, why wouldn't you do that? And then I was, so so it went up the ladder through the association Um, And I wrote an email um, to somebody that's fairly high ranking that was deciding and it took a week and they basically said, nope, you can't do it. Okay. Um, So now I can't post on social media in uniform because clearly I'm an embarrassment. And of note as well, before like this breach of directive, the directive didn't even exist at that time. They created the directive afterward Um, And I had already submitted approval to have this account uh, to corporate communications. But unfortunately, I submitted it the wrong way because I misread the directive. So I had sent it directly to corporate communications rather than through my staff sergeant, which I should have done. But I don't think that that should be a deal breaker. So the directive wasn't even in place yet. And I had done Mm. all the steps. I even told my staff sergeant what I was doing. Um, I was speaking with other members of the upper echelon that happened to be police officers that were black. And they just just said, thank you for being an ally. And I was an ally to them. And that was the whole point. Because when all of this happened, I was reaching out to black police officers saying, how are you doing? Like, how do these two identities, uh, like, how are you, how are you doing? I cannot imagine how you feel right now and the conversations that you must be privy to right now. Uh, And that is the whole reason why I did it. And I remember one of those officers said, I will believe you're an ally when you speak out. So I did. And then I was served orders. I now have like, I have anxiety for the first time in my life because I don't feel respected by my colleagues. And this is just, again, like it's just a cycle, a cycle forever that I start training. And because I'm a female, apparently I'm incompetent. And now because I'm too incompetent to deliver an anti-racist message. I get silenced because they can't control me. And they want to be able to control the messaging. Even one of the ideas I had, they used. I had a project at one point with a black officer that we had submitted for approval that was denied. Um, And essentially what it was, was a photo series of black police officers and other police officers telling their story. And it was going to be over a series of photos. So voice over this series of photos. And they did something like that, um, but at a corporate level after, after I'd submitted that proposal. So I guess it's okay that they do it, but it's not okay when somebody who's a mere constable and a, a female constable, no less, does it. Um, so that's sort of where I am. <laughs> So I just have a question about, and I think you already kind of touched on it in the beginning, but 
while you're doing this and this is all going on, do you know other officers who are public, who are in their uniform on social media? Yes. And they didn't have the same experience as you? Because I know I've seen other officers, although I've never done it, I've seen other officers do it. I've seen them in their uniform. I've seen them out there public. So I'm curious in the service that you were in, how common was this? Did you see it? And what was their, what was the punishment or what was the response to those? Well, I, I, I know of a few stories. Um, so a male officer who was actually chastising me when I did a video about white privilege, um, he came on not anonymously and was saying that I was smug and making fun of me. And so I went and I realized who it was. Uh, when I looked at his content, because he had a video using the R word and saying that police officers that make videos dancing are seen as the R word because they are the R word. Um, and then had another one that was about saying that, like, it, it was commenting on George Floyd and sort of like the, uh, that if we think that uh, George Floyd was merely killed because he was black, then we're actually the racists. And I know that he, that particular officer had done a number of other things on social media that was problematic, uh, making fun of other officers. And he got desk duty. I know of another officer who had come out about being sexually assaulted uh, within the service. She is, uh, well, she was given similar cease and desist orders. So silencing orders. Now she's suspended because she refused to sign them. There's a number of other officers who are male who have come out and also commented in a productive way, just indicating that, you know, we need to start focusing on racism. And as far as I know, nothing happened to them. I know one of them received an email uh, from corporate communications asking for approval to be submitted. And then that officer didn't do that and nothing happened. So it seems pretty across the board that um, it's... Uh, we t and I can't say this definitively because I don't know, but in my experience, female officers are getting suspended for speaking truth, and the male officers seem to not be getting suspended for using the R word on social media, which is, you shouldn't be using that in any platform. Um, that particular officer was not in uniform, to be fair, however, tagged our police service. We have a number of officers on social media who are usually men, there are some women, but they're spreading conspiracy theories, um, like alt-right theories, anti-mask rhetoric. They're convinced that the vaccine is experimental gene therapy that will kill us all, or pandemic rhetoric that COVID-19 is not real um, and is nothing more than the flu, and that they're healthy, therefore they're not in danger without considering the fact that even if they ended up being asymptomatic for being healthy, which won't even necessarily be the case, they could spread it to an elderly person. They could spread it to somebody who can't get a vaccine. They could put a baby on a ventilator with what they're doing. So uh, as far as I've seen, they're still going and not in having any issues continuing. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot. Uh, that's happened. Hey, how so many more you... stories I could tell you, um, but they're so specific to me that I don't want to get myself in trouble. I'm genuinely terrified of speaking up for myself. I'm terrified of doing anything at this point. I go to work almost every day and I'm scared that I've done something wrong and I'm going to be suspended. So I pretty much just shut up and hid and try to not bring any attention to myself because why would I want to do that? I've and I've continued on my platform, uh, but I don't bring up policing ever because out of fear. People know I'm a police officer. I'm supported and I'm respected because of the things I said previously and the things I stand for now. But I also can't run the risk of being suspended. I have a family. How has how has this impacted, all of this impacted? I mean, you talked a bit about anxiety. Has it had, you know, kind of like those far-reaching consequences and impacted your family life? And just can yeah. you describe? Yeah, uh, when it was all happening, I remember um, not being able to handle my kids by myself, like putting them to bed. It's still awful now, um, but I was so anxious. I had an anxiety attack at one point where I, when all this was happening, I fell down the stairs do and that was that's actually my 
first anxiety attack. And I've had one more since that was actually recently. Um, and I think it was brought on by a fairly dangerous call that I had attended on my own, but that is just part of the job. Um, so I think I would be better equipped to handle things had all this not happened. And that's including from the beginning of my career. I've always been sort of embarrassed to be myself. Um, and that's a really tough pill to swallow. And I don't think any of this would have happened if I was a guy. And that's a problem. The fact that I was scared to speak to the two of you is a problem. The fact that we can't tell stories that actually happen to us, even though they should not be against any service messaging. Why are we being silenced? I don't understand. A guy can go and use the R word on social media, but we can't talk about sexual harassment, bullying, misogyny, racism. What? Like, to the extent that you don't care that an officer, somebody threatened to shoot her in the face and it's still more important that we don't speak about racism or misogyny. Like what are they doing? Like, I don't know if it's because the upper echelon, at least in my service is almost completely comprised by men. The association is completely comprised by men. And there was one officer and I think, and this is, she thinks from speaking with her um, that this is why um, they took note of her social media uh, was because she pointed out that our entire upper echelon was brought over by another service and not one of them is female out of all the applicants. Like, I don't understand that. And why are they so threatened by a constable talking about misogyny? I don't understand. So I don't know. Upset the apple cart there. Yeah. I just had a question. I was wondering if you'd be, I don't know if you're comfortable answering this question or if you could talk a little bit more about it, but you talked about, are you on patrol right now? And can you talk a little bit more about not feeling backed up if you're comfortable, not feeling backed up on calls? Cause I know I've heard that before and it's something that I've always been concerned about. Um, yes. So there was that one instant when I was trying to leave the station um, in my civilian clothes. And then I was made fun of over that. But since then, because I did bring that um, to my supervisor's attention, it has gotten better, but I still worry that particular officer who was making fun of me on social media answered the phone the other day, which is why I know he's on desk duty. It just, it, it's a problem. And I don't, I don't know how I would feel about so many of the officers that have said so many horrible things about me, I, I don't know if I can rely on them for backup. You know, what if I have to run into the people that just ghosted me that were once my friends? Like it makes it very difficult to work with these people. And yes, I question it, but I can't say it definitively or not, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, you know, the, the idea or the feeling that you're not able to trust the people that you work with, does that extend beyond just work in terms of, trusting other people in your lives, your life, or, you know, if you meet people, how has that been impacted your social Aside from being ghosted by my friends who were police officers, I still do have a very good group of police officers who do support me um, and that I do love. So it hasn't impacted us at all. In fact, I, I think it's made them respect me more, which is nice. Uh, my family is amazing and fully support me and are very proud of me. Uh, my in-laws as well. So no, my, my friendships really haven't been impacted. And I think that those who decided to ghost me and not support me or make fun of me behind my back, they weren't friends at all to begin with. And it just sort of illuminates their true colors. So I guess moving forward, um, what's your plan? Like if you if you had a message that you wanted to send to your leadership now, oh, what toughie. would it be? I would first and foremost ask why this messaging is so threatening to them. And what is the issue with having conversations? Why do you need to control all of these narratives? Why are you allowing officers to use the R word on social media? Um, when we're living in this social media world, isn't it important for us to be able to use it 
in a positive way, shouldn't we be allowed to start conversations? Isn't it important to understand every side? Isn't it important to acknowledge that there is another side beyond our own? How is it that all of this happened to me in training? And this is personal. This is a personal question that all of this happened to me in training. And I went to supervisors and everybody sat by and let it happen. Even though I passed everything, why did you let this happen to me? And then why didn't you check on me after? That's insane to me. Like, it just, it's so baffling and mind boggling. And I've seen these people since and they just pretend that it didn't happen. So these are, and I know that I'm not the only one. I think that I'm one of the worst cases and that particular training officer no longer is employed with us, but for another reason. I just, I don't understand how any of this was allowed to happen. I don't understand if you, if the service agreed with my messaging and the messaging of other females, why wouldn't you direct the delivery and let us know how you want to deliver a message? Because it's an important message. And at the end of the day, they're failing us. Can you say whether that person was, did, did they retire or were they? Forced to quit. Forced out. Forced to quit. Okay. So they are still getting their pension. They are yeah. still. Yeah. Okay. I'm they have a job. Um, their job. Their current job helps legislate policing in the government. I know. Everybody just had a brain explosion. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know what to say about that. I remember um, a sergeant that I was particularly fond of um, was aware of my situation. This is years later of what happened to me in use of force and asked if I would write a letter about everything that that officer had done to me. And I was too scared. Every time I go for requalification, I basically have a day-long panic attack. Um, So it affects my performance because I don't want to be back where all that was happening to me, where I was continually humiliated every single day. Well, it's like being re-victimized all over again, right? Walking into it. Um, Can you speak more? So you mentioned the individual who asked you to write a letter. Along the way, have you had kind of allies that you would say have really helped to like helped you along throughout this, throughout your experience that have made a difference in a yes, positive way. My friends, like any of the black police officers that I was working with initially when my project was denied, um, they've been wonderful. I have plenty of female officer friends. Only recently, obviously coming to this podcast, um, have I found others. This is, but this is probably the first time that I found a group of people that have had similar experiences. Previous to this, I think I was just sort of wadding in a pool of humiliation and embarrassment. Yeah. So if, if you could say anything to other police women or women in the military or in the like firefighters or any male dominated organization, what would you say to them? right now what would you want them to know we're stronger together like alone yeah alone individually there hasn't been any difference made and we've just been silenced and the ones that haven't been silenced or allowed themselves to be silenced have been embarrassed and humiliated and suspended or fired or investigated like just brought right back into like corners of shame and i'm over it so the best thing that you can do is come find us. That's a huge piece talking about the shame that we experience when we go through those events that are no fault of our own, uh, all because somebody decides that they don't like you for what you stand for, or they don't want their narratives altered. And they want to control Considering it. Considering yeah. most upper echelons are a bunch of men, who do they think they are controlling the narrative of women? You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's so problematic. Like I have never in my life uh, tried to speak a person of color's experience, a transgendered person's experience, because I am not one. Like this almost reminds me of the abortion debate, um, where like a bunch of like guys are telling women what to do with their bodies. So, like, you're going to control my narrative surrounding misogyny when you're a guy? 
it just it doesn't make any sense. D- throughout your career, have you experienced any sexual harassment? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's um. It was more. Um, I worked in a. I. I don't want to. Saying the specific experiences might give my identity even more away. I'm not too hard. It's not too hard to figure out who I am. Just saying all of this. Um, but yes, yes, I had comments on my. I've had comments on my experiences. Um, I know that my appearance is still regularly talked about, which I, I just think that we all need to come together and agree to stop commenting on people's bodies. It, it's just, it's so unfortunate that it's so commonplace in policing. And like, I would prefer to be valued for my ability to do my job and my intellect. Um, but no, my, my value is apparently solely based on my appearance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did have a question going back when you said there was an inspector who kind of encouraged you to apply or felt that you were really a good candidate. You had the qualities. I'm curious. I don't know if Susan's curious, but is this a Always. female who said this or a male? <laughs> very self-actualized male who is intelligent and I respect. Awesome. And he's actually been around for a very long time um, in the service. <laughs> Not, yeah. But yeah, he's a good one. Okay. Awesome. And we have these allies and there's so many wonderful males and we say that all the time. Um, it was just, I was just curious because I do find policing has this perception of, you know, oh, we need to use force, blah, blah, blah. And that's just so not actually what police officers do. Well, and that's a huge part of Lisa's research was about the use of force. So I don't know, Lisa, if you want to, you know, start a conversation about that or... Sure. Yeah. I, um, so my research was on, so similar to you, I'm a small female and I had similar experiences, experiences to you. Not, I can relate when you're saying you were targeted because you're a small female. They were always saying how I'm basically not strong enough. So my, I was interested in researching how often police actually use force on calls. So I basically delved into, delved into that. I found out that I just, I just published an op-ed actually. And I found out that 98% of the time police use de-escalation. So I'm thinking we're using it 98% of the time, 2% of the time we is the only time we're allowed to use force. So why is there so much emphasis on force and why do they continue to, push this narrative and continue to force us to have this, you know, aggressive side. I felt very similar to you where I had to, I had to fit the profile of what they wanted. I felt like I needed, I couldn't be myself. So yeah, my, my research was basically all around that. And of course I found out, no surprise, that women are better at deescalating and they are more likely to practice unpredictable policing, which means that when someone would predict that they would use force and they actually would not use force. And police women are more likely to be assaulted on a call than a man. And they still choose to not use force. Oh, yes. Um, I I do think that there's a lot of value in use of force training, merely because you want to be trained for when things do go sideways. And very recently I had a call that did go sideways (laughs) and force necessary. Um, I handled it and I think everything went the way it should have went where, you know, nobody really got hurt. But uh, I do think that we do need to focus more on um, how to talk to people because a lot of the time I have seen situations be amplified uh, because of an inability to talk to people. Um, Sometimes you just have to listen and not talk over people, which I think is a skill that we don't focus on enough. If that makes sense, I think that's really important for our training. So yes, I like I do think that there's value in use of force training, but I think that there's value in also learning social skills and how to relate to people. Like you know, I, I feel like a lot of our training surrounding this is very sanitized and very corporate. Like we seem to lack the ability to be real, which is again why I think people are so angry at the uniform. They just think that we're a bunch of robots 
with no personalities. And that's not the case. And even when things do go sideways and force is used, uh, we can't speak out because we're silenced by oversight committees, which I'm not necessarily saying that there's no value in that, but I think that there needs to be some more transparency because there really is a lack of understanding about policing by the public. Like, and I always think of the example um, of when someone will ask me, like, why wasn't this person shot in the leg? Well, that's really difficult to do. (laughs) You know, we have to, like, for our use of force training, we're standing there tactically breathing, um, having to hit the target a hundred times from 40 feet away. And that is really hard to do. Could you imagine being in an intense situation, trying to shoot a moving target? And then even then, if you shoot them in the leg, it's not going to stop them. The whole purpose is to eliminate the threat and shooting them in the leg does not eliminate the threat, especially when somebody's charging you with a knife. So these are things that the public doesn't understand. And why can't we educate them? So if you, if you had, like, if you could deliver any message to the public right now, and I know you just kind of did, what else would you want the public to know about policing and policing organizations based on your experience? A lot of us actually do give a shit about uh, racial injustice and social injustice. Um, A lot of us recognize that there's a problem. A lot of us recognize that there's a problem with society. A lot of us can understand that you need to fix society in order to fix the institutions. We're not allowed to speak out. This podcast here illuminates why. Why we can't talk. Why we can't have our own narrative. Because we're constantly having a bunch of guys shout shout over us and shut us up. So I, I think that that really needs to be understood. That we are not robots. Awesome. Is there, do you have any other questions, Lisa? No, I think that was great. I think, yeah, that you answered. And I think the education piece is so important too, because I definitely have those conversations with people. And I just, as soon as you said shot in the leg, I, me and Susan both started yeah. to laugh because yeah. we've had that discussion with so Can't many you people. you just shoot the knife out of yeah. their hand? No, no, you can't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine if we were that skilled? Like you're right? in fight oh flight or freeze because literally your reptilian yeah. brain has taken over. Yeah, and, and people just don't understand these things. It's part of the problem. And that's also part of the problem with silencing us because there's value with the public knowing that we actually do see ambiguity, that we actually can, that we struggle ourselves. Like, I think that that needs to be said. I think that's important. And like, constantly shutting down all of these narratives what purpose is that serving like i just i don't i don't understand what they're doing i just don't i was so surprised that they you know just immediately shut me down with no conversation um i just never thought in a million years that anybody could have a problem with what i was saying and the problem that they had was because i was saying very specifically kind of waiting for white male officers to speak up because those are the people I'm waiting to speak up <laughs> like because they they tend to be the ones that you know come from a position of privilege and they haven't experienced what you know many of us have as females as um, officers of color of you know gender and sexual absolutely, diversity absolutely they don't understand and then they refuse and I'm not saying everybody but a lot of them, refuse to acknowledge any of it because I guess it threatens their position. You know what I mean? So it's just... If you, if you could say anything to say perhaps bystanders that you work with um, who maybe are afraid to say anything, what, what would you say me, to them? Um, I, again, I would say, come find us. In my own personal experience, it did not go well by myself. And it's terrifying Everything that's happening is not right. Don't be embarrassed, but be cautious. Because you're going to get a target on your back. It, 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 there's, there's not, like, until we start having these conversations and start acknowledging different perspectives, you will be targeted. And you have to prepare yourself for that. So before speaking out, maybe find something like this, find another officer, take advice. Um, If you figured out who I am, come talk to me and you're not alone. And that was a big thing for me is I've always felt really, really alone in all of this. 
And I think that that's caused a lot of trauma for me and trauma that I haven't really wanted to admit. Well, I can say for myself, you are very inspirational, very brave. I am beyond thrilled that you were willing to come and speak with us and you are nothing short I'm of right remarkable. Back at you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I so appreciate the two of you and everyone else involved in this. This was a long time coming and I'm so glad it's happening because it needs to. We need to speak up. This is not right. You know, we need to make the world better for the future generation because the experiences that we have had are unacceptable. And we just like policing needs to recognize humanity, humanity and start taking accountability and stop silencing people. And it just, until, yeah, until we can do that, until they can do that. Um, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> until they can do that, I, I don't think that we can move forward. So I think that we really need to start encouraging these conversations. And to anybody brave enough to speak out and use their face, you're my hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to thank you too, Jane, for coming on and for your, you know, being so brave and sharing your story. I can imagine how difficult that is. And we are just so thankful that you were able to come on and just find support here. And yeah, just, I feel like you're a motivational speaker as well. There was so many good <laughs> totally <laughs> comments you made that, it's yeah. It's been ruining me so a while. We are just so grateful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So- you, you have like a second, like a second calling. <laughs> yes. A second calling. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe, maybe after this comes out, they figure out who I am and maybe fire me. Maybe that's what I'll do. <laughs> Jeez. Well, shame on anybody who fires someone for being a victim mm-hmm. yeah. in the hands of others, right? It happens. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you've found many that mm-hmm. that's happened to you or they've been iced out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're losing great officers. It's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> this uh, is <just> very cathartic. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Behind Blue Doors podcast to catch the latest episodes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org. Take care, and until next time.